people of God had been in exile, they're coming home to Jerusalem. They see the steps leading into the temple, and as they ascend each one, they pray and give praise to God. They teach us how to pray and praise God in difficult times. Join us for this series every Wednesday night, 6 o'clock. Tonight we are in Psalm 133. We have tonight and one more night in the study of the Psalm of Ascents. So if you have a copy of the Word of God, turn with me to Psalm 133. And I will read this text, I will pray, and we will reflect on this psalm together. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Father, we thank you for this privilege you've given us today, tonight, to open your word and to read your word and to reflect on it. We are so grateful for these past Wednesday nights when we could gather under the authority of your word and think about these beautiful poems uh, that were written by some of the pilgrims, some of them written by David or at least related to David as um, they came from their place of exile back into Jerusalem and were ascending the steps into the sacred city and thinking about your goodness and grace to them, your kindness and mercy toward them the way you had watched over them and provided for them. And they would sing these beautiful songs as they ascended those steps. And tonight uh, we come to this psalm that uh, causes us to reflect on what unity is. Blessed are those brothers and sisters who dwell together in unity. Lead us tonight by your Holy Spirit, we pray, and guide us that we might know your word better and apply it more faithfully and more fully to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 133, like some, not many, but some of the Psalms of Ascent is associated with David. The superscription at the beginning of the Psalm, a song of ascents of David. Now, that does not mean that this psalm necessarily is from David, composed by David, but it has something to do with David. Uh, Typically, we would tie this superscription to having something to do with the time of his rule and reign, and that certainly seems to be the case in this particular psalm, because It is about unity, and we can look back on the time of David's reign and the subsequent reign of his son Solomon upon the throne of Israel, and we can see that this was a clear concern, a big issue. Uh, This leads me just for a few moments. I could talk about what I'm about to talk about for a long, long time, but for just a few moments to remind us that 
When we are reading scripture and seeking to understand scripture, we must do so in the light of, as far as we can know, the original historical context in which a given text is written. We don't, we don't come to the Bible and immediately begin to apply it to our lives without understanding something of the historical context. We cannot know the meaning of a text in any kind of form or fashion unless we know something about the original context. We have to know what it meant in order to understand what it means. So we talk about historical interpretation and we talk about theological interpretation. We have to, first of all, understand the historical meaning in order to get to the theological meaning. Now let me tell you very briefly what I mean by and what other people who study the Bible mean by theological meaning. They mean the meaning of the text in light of the whole of Scripture. The Bible ultimately is not 66 books, it's one book. The Bible has a multiplicity of authors, but ultimately it has only one author, and that author is God. And God is unfolding for us from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation one story, and the centerpiece of that story is the way that he has worked in the world that he has created to redeem a people for himself under the authority of the lordship of Jesus. One character holds center stage in the Bible, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It all bears witness to him, testifies to him, tells the story of his greatness and his goodness and of his grace in coming to us to redeem out of all the world a people for himself. Theological interpretation is about what God is doing in Jesus Christ to redeem his people in order to save them from his wrath, to redeem them from the ruin of the fires of judgment, and to bring them at last into his eternal kingdom that will be forever upon this earth when he establishes the new heavens and the new earth. That means when we come to a psalm like this, we must go back in time uh, to the time of David and we must ask, what is the historical context of this psalm? And you can go back into the time of David and you can realize that David's family was in absolute chaos. Uh, he had sons that were in rebellion against him, in rebellion against one, uh, one another, Absalom and Amnon, and then it followed with Solomon as well. Uh, Solomon had sons, Adonijah and uh, Solomon, that were at odds with each other. There was rebellion, there was revolt, there was revolution that was going on during the time of David, and it followed in the time of Solomon by confusion and chaos, chaos that led ultimately to the collapse of the kingdom, the division of the kingdom of Israel from Judah, the north from the south, and kings ruling in, in the north, and kings ruling in the, in the south, and all kinds of conflict and confusion and evil and all of that uh, going on in a time when there was a desire for 
unity, even a prayer for unity. That's the context. And that's the focus for this psalm. This psalm unfolds with the opening verse and the closing verse pointing us to the significance of unity. In between the opening verse and the closing verse are two pictures that portray for us the absolute power of unity. And I believe interwoven throughout this psalm is a forward look. And the forward look is to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who would, before his crucifixion, uh, pray for his people throughout the ages. And he would point us to the kind of unity that is the only kind of unity that exists And he is the key to that unity. I hear a lot about unity and have for all the years of my ministry in the church. We just need unity. We need to come together. And I hear that so much and I always, when I hear it, understand the sincerity and the genuine concern that people have. But what is it that we're looking for when we're looking for Unity. What are we praying for when we pray for unity? We, we need to understand even that biblically and understand it in the context of the history of the unfolding of the word of God so that we are not praying for or seeking that which is not at the heart of what the Bible means when the Bible calls us to unity. So let's have a look. Behold... How good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I've actually called this reflection in the little notebook that I use to take notes for Wednesday night. I've called this reflection brothers dwelling in unity. The only word in that title that we can understand with Uh, without some ambiguity in terms of our understanding, is the preposition in. Brothers. Uh, There's no unity that exists outside men and women being brothers and sisters as the people of God. That's impossible to have unity between those who are not believers and those who are believers. Uh, Unity is for brothers, and it's brothers who dwell together. It's It's localized. It's those whose hearts have been transformed by the grace of God through the good news of Jesus Christ. And unity is never institutional or organizational. It can never be programmed or produced by a series of activities or singing some song, let's come together now. It is produced by God through his Holy Spirit. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. The word for good here in the Hebrew is the same word that's used in Genesis 1 as the creation week unfolds and God looks at what he has made and said it is good. 
That means it is something that's produced by him. He did this and it brings him praise and that which he does which brings him praise is that which pleases him. Unity is good because unity that is real unity is produced by God brings praise to God and thus praises God and it's pleasant which has to do with being joyful. It brings gladness to the heart of God. When brothers dwell together in unity. Now at the end of verse 3, this is what you hear the psalmist saying, for there, that is where brothers dwell together in unity that is produced by God, that yields the praise of God, that brings delight to the heart of God, or that is pleasant, there where you have that kind of unity, the Lord has commanded the blessing. The blessing, singular. And he tells us what that blessing is. It is life forevermore. Now, we know from the perspective of the New Testament that life forevermore is encapsulated in a phrase that Jesus uses and that the Gospels use. It is the phrase eternal life. And that phrase is found as a focal point in the prayer of Jesus. So turn with me quickly and we just want to look very briefly at what is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. The intercessory prayer of Jesus for his church. John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give, here's the word, to give eternal life, life everlasting, life forevermore to all you, to all whom you have given me. Now, Jesus is praying to God here and he says to God, his father, you've given me authority over everything and everyone, but you have, out of all the world, you have given me those to whom I give eternal life. And this is eternal life. This is life everlasting, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here is the foundation for unity. Here is the focal point for unity. It is found only among those who know God through Jesus Christ and who are surrendering our lives as the core of our lives to the lordship of Jesus. Jesus prays in John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Here is the fullness of unity. It's found among those that are given by God to Jesus. Jesus redeems them, brings them in relationship to God. We are joined together 
as the people of God because we have submitted ourselves to Jesus as Lord and that is seen in our desire to keep his word. Not only that, verse 9, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. We don't belong to the world We're separated from the world. We are not carried along by the ways of the world. We are surrendered to Jesus, submitted to him and the authority of his word. In fact, in verse 16, Jesus makes this plain. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them or make them holy in the truth. And he tells us what truth is. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. This is unity. It's unity that's found among those people that belong to God through Jesus Christ, who are seeking to be obedient to the word, who are separated from the world, and who know we're sent into the world as faithful witnesses to Jesus. Jesus prays that these people, the only people who can know true unity, would know the unity that God produces, that God gives. Unity, again, let me say it, is not institutional. It's not organizational. It's not programmatic. It's not activity-driven. It can't be produced by people. It can only be produced by God. There are many churches that will be in conflict their entire existence because in the church, in almost every local church, there are those who belong to Jesus and there are those who don't. That's true almost everywhere in the world. The unity is among the people of God. I can be with a believer in Belarus or I can be with a believer in Liberia and have far more in common with them, my heart beats with theirs in a way that my heart doesn't beat with someone who is not a believer or someone who professes to be a believer but is giving no evidence that they are. This unity is strangely mysterious, but it's wonderfully and incredibly beautiful because it doesn't depend on Culture, it doesn't depend upon color of skin, it doesn't depend upon language because it's produced by the Spirit of God. It's precious. David, or whoever wrote this psalm, gives us two pictures so that we can see, (laughs) we can see something of the incredible beauty of this unity. Verse 2, it is like the precious oil. Oil was the symbol in that day of the Spirit of God, and it was also the symbol of gladness. It is like the precious oil on the head of on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. Aaron was the high priest. His family was the priestly family. And the oil of God's anointing running down from his head onto his beard, even onto the collar of his robes. This is what that unity is like. It 
It has a fragrant odor to it that speaks of the presence of God's spirit and where there is the spirit of God, there is gladness and joy. He shifts images in verse 3. He goes to to the northernmost point of uh, the landscape where he is riding the large mountain towering above the others, Mount Hermon. And from that mountain, as the snow would melt, the water would flow down into the valley below and those dry areas, wadi beds, would become full of water, bringing life and renewal and restoration He's saying that's what it's like. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Unity is precious. It brings brings joy through the presence of God. It brings gladness. It brings life. It brings refreshing. It brings growth. It's, It's a beautiful thing to behold. And it's that for which we should pray in our church and in every church, but we can't produce it. We can't produce it. We can't do anything to make it happen because it is the work of God among his people and what we pray is that God would so work among his people even here in our church family. Or if you're listening in to uh, this uh, teaching and you're part of another church family, then praise God for you and your church family and pray for your church family to know this unity that can be produced by God. At the end of the day... This unity that comes from God comes from God because those who belong to God pray and persist in prayer that God would bring that unity among his people. And Father, we thank you that this unity comes from you. If it comes from us, then we would be heavily burdened that we have to do something, that we have to come some up with some kind of gimmick or gadget that we can uh, produce this unity and we know, Lord, it's, uh, it's kind of like the wind. It comes and then it goes, it seems. It is there and then it isn't. And we don't know how it got here and we don't know why it left. There are churches that have known the joy and gladness and delight of great unity and then they've seen that great confusion has come. And even the wisest among those in churches where that happens can't exactly say why it was there and why it wasn't. And we pray, Lord, for your church. We need, we need unity, but we need something far more than that. We need you. So do in your church what only you can do. And as a result of what you do, would you bring your people under the authority of your word to worship before your throne and to know the great joy and gladness of being one in the spirit and being one in the Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.